Hi there. Welcome to Business Leadership Podcast. In this podcast, I interview successful business leaders and industry experts to help you grow your business. I truly believe that sometimes a single insight can completely change your business directions and allow you to achieve your business goals. In this episode, I interviewed David C. Burnett. David's an author of seven books. He's a seminar host. He's a consultant. He's, a, uh, he's also a public speaker, and he's also a business coach when it comes to M&A transaction uh, process. David's been helping out business leaders for many years on a variety of different market to either prepare the business for M&A transaction or simply help them increase the business value. So if you're in a business leadership position, I think you wanna watch this uh, episode, say, whether you're trying to sell a business or prepare for an exit strategy or simply just trying to increase a business value, I think you will find this discussion very interesting. You know, David walk us through step-by-step process, you know, even though you're not trying to sell or, or purchase another business, if you simply wanna increase a business value, he walk us through step-by-step uh, process, how to increase a business value. If you like this content, Don't forget to send us your feedback and uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel. Until next time, enjoy. Hi guys, uh, welcome to Business Leadership Blog. Uh, Today my guest is David Barnett. David, uh, you know, he's he's a business consultant. He's been helping business leaders either buying a business or selling a business or some sort of transaction related to business. He's the author of several books. He has an online, uh, you know, um, a YouTube uh, channel as well. He's he's a multiple podcast channels as well. And uh, David, you've been doing this for a long time, and I'm a new to this. I'm looking forward to learning from you. And uh, and thank you so much for time, and welcome to podcast. Oh, you know what? Thanks for having me on. And you know what? It's uh, the biggest piece of advice I can give to anyone who wants to start a podcast is just to begin, mm-hmm. because you know you can you can sit around thinking about it for an awful long time. I, I know I thought about it for a while, and then I finally got going. And I would I would discourage anyone from ever watching any of my videos from 2014 because they're really really awful. But that's how I got to make better videos later on, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, you know, one thing, you know, I think I mentioned that to you the other day we were talking that, uh, you know, I didn't realize how much is learning curve for me in, in this, this blogs. And I, was, I thought I was going to add value to for my clients or, you know, the people I'm connecting with. Didn't realize how much learning curve is for me, you know, uh, to going through it. So I learn every, in, in a, you know, uh, podcast I have, I'll take away more from the podcast than anybody else will take away from it. Oh, and it's and it's a great way to expand your network as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I are now friends, and it's because you decided to pick up the microphone. Yeah, interesting. So, so tell us a little bit how you help business leaders, uh, David. Let's talk about it. You've been doing it for a long time. You know how you've been helping business leaders, and where you see that industry is going in that other area. Sure, no problem. Um, and so, and so, as you mentioned, um, you know, I I at one point was a business broker, but my path to becoming a business broker is is one that probably a lot of your other listeners will identify with. I was one of those kids who was always uh, into business, always trying to figure out how to make money as a child and starting up little teenage businesses when I was a adolescent. And then eventually I went to business school at, thinking that they were going to teach me what I needed to know to become a businessman. It was only after a few years, I realized that they were trying to teach me how to be one of these middle managers in a big company. Mm-hmm. And my passion and interest was always in the businesses that we see when we're driving around in our city, sort of the smaller to medium-sized businesses. Mm-hmm. And my real introduction to business came after I graduated because I was fortunate enough to get a job as a sales rep with the Yellow Pages. So this was back in the 90s mm-hmm. when it didn't matter where you were in the world, if you typed plumber into Google, you would get a plumber in California. And yeah. so they hadn't figured out local search at the time. And so if you wanted to find a business that could help you where you lived, you reached for the phone book. And so 
I was able to go and meet with and talk with the owners and managers of all these, these businesses and learn what was important to them. And that's when my my understanding and business really start to became started to become more broad in understanding all different kinds of industries and businesses out there. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually, though, I could tell that the days were numbered for the Yellow Pages. And so um, I left that to start a business. So this mm-hmm. was my first business startup. It was me and a partner. And yeah. we actually tried to buy a franchise, but you know it didn't work out. And so we copied the idea and started our own thing from scratch. And it worked and, out quite well, but we were serving homeowners and my heart really wasn't in it. I, I have a passion for business and entrepreneurs and other business owners. And so we sold that business. So it's interesting because it was one of the first businesses I sold, but I didn't get into buying and selling businesses at that point. I followed a different path and I, I, I signed up and I took this program to learn how to become a business loan broker. And yeah. so I started a new business as a broker of loans, capital leases, factoring facilities, et cetera, all kinds of finance tools for small and medium-sized businesses. And I actually became very good friends with the bankers because a lot of the times when they couldn't help their clients, they would send them to me mm-hmm. and I would find some kind of alternative finance solution for them or spend the time and, and do some work with them to help them package up their need in such a way that the bank that referred it to me would actually then agree to finance it. Mm-hmm. And so I had quite a few of those where I'd get a referral from a banker and then come back with a package for the same banker and that they would go on and, and approve the, the financing, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lot of fun until uh, the, the Wall Street, Bay Street crisis came in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And literally half the companies that I was using as alternative lenders went out of business themselves. And mm-hmm. so I needed to make a pivot. And one of the things that I noticed um, when I was uh, doing that work in financing was that a lot of people were looking for money to acquire existing businesses. And I saw a lot of really poorly structured, poorly handled deals. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that there was a a demand in my market for someone who could do it a little more professionally. That's what opened the door for me to get into the world of business brokerage. And and I was fortunate enough that I signed up with a big international company that gave me access to training. And so I, I earned my professional certification, ended up owning a business brokerage for three years. I sold 35 businesses in that time. And, um, eventually got out of it because uh, Gurmeet Business Brokerage is actually a pretty awful business to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's exciting. It's interesting. You get to understand the point of view of the buyer, the seller. You learn how to alleviate the fears and concerns of all the advisors, the lawyers, the accountants. You learn how to please the bankers. But at the end of the day, it's a project-based type of business, which is compensated based on completion. Mm-hmm. And there's so many of those other advisors around the deal that no matter what, you know, maybe wouldn't be satisfied. And I realized I'm in this business where I've got willing buyers and willing sellers who are coming together to make a deal, but other people have the ability to upset the deal and by extension, upset my income. And I realized I need to get into something a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. I had two young kids at the time. So I, I became a banker. And so I started to to actually, I was strictly involved with uh, supply chain finance, with receivables financing and payables financing. And uh, people kept coming to me though, because they were working on these deals. They'd been given my name here locally. And so I started a little bit of side consulting and um, that grew and grew. And when the bank decided to reorganize, I raised my hand when they were offering out packages mm-hmm. and 
that's, you know, that was five, six years ago now. And so I've just been doing this consulting work ever since. And because of things like the YouTube channel and the books that I've written, uh, I find clients from throughout the Anglosphere. So I mm-hmm. work with people in Canada, the US, Australia, and UK, New Zealand, yeah. and um, coach them through the process in, in, you know, a large part of my work is coaching people through the process of buying or selling or the steps that lead you to that point. So looking at deals, helping people look at their own business through the eyes of a buyer, doing evaluations, giving people a plan to to increase the value if they've got a horizon of time. Mm -hmm. And so so this is the world that I work in. And it's interesting that I I meet people from all kinds of other different places. And um, so, for example, I meet you know, buyers who are people dissatisfied with their job. They want to become an entrepreneur, but they don't want the risk of a startup. So they'll look at acquiring something or businesses that want to grow through acquisition, for example. Um, So I I work with a lot of people who are already in business and they see Mm -hmm. the opportunity to grow quickly through acquiring another business and kind of tucking it into the business that they already have. Of course, a lot of challenges with that kind of thing as well. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So you mentioned a couple of things, David. You know, you saw very closely what happened in 2000, 2008, uh, 2008 2009, um, the disruption in the market. You know, similar what's going on in the COVID right now. You know, I was fairly new to uh, business at that point. I didn't probably see that closely, you know, and uh, but I see now that a lot of businesses are either either getting out or or are uh, they buying other businesses because there's so much, you know, disruption what's going on in a business. Either you have to reinvent your product or reinvent your services. It just COVID put you in a spot that where you have to figure things out. Where do you see the similarity in the, these two uh, two uh, eras? You know, either COVID or two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or is it a similar or or what? Or where you see from your side with your clients what they're saying that are they are they looking to you know um, uh, ex- you know uh, increase more more uh, product services and, and take on more businesses, or are they trying to contract more? Hey, listen, I get up, sit back, and see what happens, and and then then take action from there. Yeah, sure. So number one, the, the biggest difference between the what happened in 2008, 2009 and what's happening today is in 2008, 2009, we had a general recession and a lot of different industries were affected, some more resilient than the others, but people could make changes and adapt and find new ways to, to function profitably. Okay. And eventually we came out of it. What is happening now is we've been split into three different economies. So, and, and different businesses fall into the different buckets. So you've got people who are largely unaffected by all of this pandemic stuff. So think about industrial concerns, you know, garbage contractors, people that weld pipe, people that build propane tanks, like pharmaceutical companies. Sure. Huge. Well, no, that I'll save them for a different bucket, but okay. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a huge swath of industry, which really was unaffected. You know, okay. and maybe they're facing labor shortages of things of that nature, but mm-hmm. their their business was not closed, interrupted, shut down, etc. Okay. Then you have the people who have benefited from all of this, and this is where your pharma companies might fit into, right? Or the people that mm-hmm. make you know masks and things of, of this nature, they're profiting from from all the changes that are happening. And then you have the people who, of course, you know, hospitality and whatnot, who have suffered from the direct implementation of government mandates and public health measures, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so the, I, I would say that the biggest difference is this, is that while in 2008, 2009, people can make a pivot and change and try to grow their business again, okay. today, the people who've been affected to the downside, they can attempt to make pivots and changes, but the problem is that the rules keep changing. 
And so what worked for a restaurant, you know, in the summer may not work for a restaurant in the fall. And, and so the ability to plan, the ability to forecast, the ability to see any degree into the future, um, this is an impediment to business planning. It's an impediment to management. But when you take away any kind of foresight whatsoever into the future, you also take away the ability to, to put a price on that business, right? As far as, as, far as the anticipation of earning future cash flows. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of things, when you have businesses that have profited from this, the question then becomes, well, what if these profits don't continue? And so there are big clouds that kind of loom. Mm-hmm. I was on a conference call uh, a couple of weeks ago with some people that run one of these big online marketplaces for businesses that are for sale. Yeah. And they were talking about how the average price of businesses sold in the third quarter of 2021 um, is more than double the average price of businesses sold in the third quarter of 2019. So what does that mean? Well, the number of businesses transacting actually has gone way down, but the average Mm -hmm. price is higher, meaning that a lot of the smaller businesses that might normally have been changing hands simply aren't. And so if you think about a business that is performing poorly, that Mm -hmm. restaurant example I gave you, you know, those people that own the business, if they do really poorly, they might close. So closure Mm -hmm. is, is one potential outcome. A closed business typically doesn't sell. Its assets might sell. Someone might buy the furniture, equipment, et cetera, right? But it's not mm-hmm. going to be sold as a going concern. Um, people who are doing more poorly and have an uncertain future realize that now is not the time to sell a business. So a lot of those impacted businesses are being withdrawn from the market. People mm-hmm. say, you know what? I'm, I'm stuck with this now. I'm going to have to live through it. I'm going to have to try to navigate my way to the other side. Mm-hmm. And then when things recover, I'll look at selling then. So this would indicate, this would be another indicator of why businesses may not be in the market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, small and medium-sized businesses trade for relatively low multiples of cash flow. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like the stuff that you see in the business press where businesses are selling for eight, nine, 20 times cash flow or anything like that. And so no one really ever gets excited about cashing out. There can be strategic opportunities. You know, if, if a big player really needs what you have and they're they're willing to put some of their potential earnings into their valuation mix, you might get a very handsome cash out, but that's not typical in the world of SMEs. Mm-hmm. In the world of small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, the typical buyer is another person like the seller, an individual who wants to come in and they want to run the business, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it is a strategic acquisition, you know, one company buying another one, the, the acquiring company is very recalcitrant to put any of the value of what they bring into that transaction. If, if I have customers that can benefit from what you have, why am I going to pay you for the work that I then have to do to go and sell my customers on this new yeah. product I'm going to add to my line, right? Mm-hmm. And so because of those low valuation multiples, uh, business owners typically don't cash out like a Silicon Valley entrepreneur might. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be some kind of pressing personal motivation that drives somebody to want to make a change in their life. So this is, this is where we come up with the reasons like divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, mm-hmm. um, you know, retirement, burnout and fatigue is a big one. So one of those things comes up in the, in the business owner's life and causes them to want to turn the page to a new chapter of life. And that's when they decide, now I want to sell my business. And they go looking for um, 
you know, the most expedient and lucrative exit that they can find at that point usually. Mm-hmm. And, and the level of preparation that, that they've maintained is going to have a big impact on that exit. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. I think one other to a point you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, you know, the business not, you know, in the market to sell. I think part of that could be the government's pumping money in the economy as well. That's slowing it down that people, you know, business were in a life sport, you know, now government provided so much money. Um, they're paying for so much, uh, you know, peril, uh, you know, for com- business to survive. It slows down for business leaders. Hey, listen, what do I need to sell? Let's let that program wear out and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that point because, a lot in Canada anyway, a lot of these programs are coming to an end. But I'll tell you, back in 2020, I was working with several clients who were looking at acquiring marginal businesses. Mm-hmm. So these businesses were not making it much in the way of profit, but they had good locations. <clears throat> in the hospitality trade, we, <clears throat> excuse me, mm-hmm. you'll, in the hospitality sector, Mm-hmm. Um, you'll often have businesses that will trade on what's called a redevelopment value. Mm-hmm. So if you think about a restaurant that isn't particularly profitable and somebody wants to open a new restaurant with a new theme, decor, menu, et cetera, it's far cheaper to take over a marginal or failing restaurant and redecorate it than it is to take a brand new commercial right. unit and mm-hmm. build one from scratch. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there, I was working with several people that were kind of on that path looking at buying some of these marginal businesses and then the pandemic hit and every one of those deals fell apart Mm -hmm. and they fell apart because these marginal businesses suddenly became very profitable. Once, once the government picked up three quarters of the wages and started to subsidize the rent after a while, these businesses became very lucrative. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting how things you know, get distorted in the marketplace mm-hmm. when you have some of these government interventions. You know, should the government have done those things? Well, I, I don't know if they had much of a choice. I mean, you can't close a third of the economy and hope for any kind of positive outcome. Mm-hmm. I think they had to do something. But I think that there are unintended consequences that have now been baked into the cake. And mm-hmm. we're going to see these things unwind as we move forward into 2022. For example, now that those supports are gone, Mm-hmm. You know, some of these businesses that seem to survive the pandemic, I think that we're going to see some of them closing out now. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. You know, it, it, that, that's a you know, great point. You know, I had a discussion with somebody last weekend and this gentleman manufactures, you know, appliances for restaurants. And they've been never been that, that this busy for the last 10, 15 years and I had a discussion with them. I was a little bit surprised. They said, everything's shut down. Restaurants closing, you know, uh, see a businesses, you know. Um, shutting down. Why are you so busy? And his, uh, uh, you know, point was, say so every time there's a, a disruption happen in the economy, it's easiest business to open is a restaurant. So all these people who left the jobs, you know, first thing they do is open a restaurant. So they get he get to sell appliances. So these new businesses, right? So he's been manufacturing through the whole COVID, and then he can't find enough labor, and that was just one of the challenges. And he's been so busy. So he just, you know, it's a, it's a different perspective when you look at from different angles that, you know, this there could be businesses that are so busy because he anticipated that a lot of business, you know, people are going to open a restaurants and he's going to be more busy selling appliances to these restaurants. That, you know what, that, that's a great, uh, that's a, that's a great thing to bring up because when, you know, when I, I work with people looking at evaluating their business and I work across many different sectors, one of the great tools that I have is the ability to look up the details of past sale transactions. 
And so restaurants and food service and other hospitality, they tend to have a lower multiple of cash flow as the sale price. Mm-hmm. And what, what that tells us is it tells us when we look at the cash flow and the selling price of, of a transaction in the past, it tells us the risk profile that that buyer saw in that business, right? What, what, to what degree do I believe this cash flow may or may not continue? It is going to, you know, if you, mm-hmm. if you think of the other extreme, a government bond, right? You know, you buy a, a government bond and you know that you're going to get the interest payment, right? And so people will pay a very high price to, for that tiny amount of cash flow. Mm-hmm. Restaurants at the other end of that scale. People will pay a lower price for the cash flow because they're not certain how many years or if it will continue forever. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is has to do with analyzing the industry and sort of barriers to entry, the moats that protect that industry. So if you're in a restaurant, if you're the only food service uh, in a, a large office complex, for example, at one time that would have probably given you a higher valuation, limited oh. competition. Mm-hmm. In the world of remote working, I don't know anymore yeah. if that will, right? Yeah. But one of the reasons why we also get this low multiple in food service is because of the ease of new entrants coming into the market. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you think about that constant churn of new places coming all the time, um, it, it really does create that uncertainty that, that leads to lower valuations. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to a business, for example, where customers are very sticky and maybe contracts are in place and you know, you have service contracts or something where there's regular revenue from that base of clients, you know, you can get a very different kind of result. If you look at a business that, you know, people are paying a monthly fee and part of their business system is integrated in that service, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What interesting. Yeah, I know definitely a different model makes that, you know, totally different, a different sense. So let's talk about business leaders, you know, who are watching, you know, who are listening to our podcast. You know, what, what are some of the, you know, you've been doing it for, for, uh, for a long time. David. What are the, some of the mistakes you see from either selling a business or buying a business? What are some of the common mistakes you see um, that, that people go through or, or what will builds a business value? You know, at the end of the day, you evaluating business based on a value. So what is those yeah. key points that, that builds a business value that, that people need to be careful? So the, the, the price that a business sells for mm-hmm. is going to be determined by the amount of cash flow that that business delivers. Okay. And so the, when a buyer looks at a business, they're going to be looking at that cash flow. That's the first question. How much money do I get if I buy this business? The second question they're going to ask is, will this cash flow carry on under my stewardship? And so that second question is a much more loaded question because Mm -hmm. that is going to lead us to ask questions like how well documented are the processes? How well documented are the procedures? How, well, you know, organized is this business, et cetera. And so a lot of the times business owners will believe that they can go and find a buyer for their business when they want to sell. And the reality is it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with you as an owner. It has to do with the state and condition of the business. Mm-hmm. So businesses will sell when they're ready to be sold, when they're in a state of, of preparation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll get a lot of people, you know, one of the things that I, that I work with uh, people on are systems and planning and organizations and having all this stuff documented. And, you know, they won't want to invest the time to do this work. And here's the biggest yeah. takeaway for all everyone listening is if you invest the time to get your business ready for sale, what in nine times out of 10, this is what I've seen. You end up with a business that is actually usually more profitable with problems identified as you go through this process, you can see where the problems are and you can address them. 
and you end up making more money and you end up with a business that's easier to run and more pleasant to run. And one, one of the ironic things that has happened several times with me is I've been working with someone towards preparing a business for sale mm-hmm. because the owner was motivated by burnout and fatigue. And as we went through the process and they were able to delegate more and more of the stuff that was gumming up their days, mm-hmm. they actually got the business into a state that they had initially imagined when they first got into business, that wow. where they thought this is what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And then they lose interest in selling. Wow. They, they actually end up getting the business they always wanted. Yeah. And, and, and that I think is one of the big reasons why people should be working on this stuff is you end up with a better business and it's easier to run. And if anything should happen, remember I mentioned those five reasons why people sell a business. Mm-hmm. Only one of those five is planned for retirement. The other four are things in life that happen to us. Mm-hmm. And so if your business is in a state of preparation and ready to be sold, and one of those things pops up, then you can put it on the market and mm-hmm. you can, and you can move on. Um, too often people don't do the work in advance. Then they decide they need to sell and then there's no time. Yeah. And then they have to look at what's the best I can do. <clears throat> you mentioned mistakes that sellers make. One of the biggest mistakes I see is that they don't work with somebody to get a proper valuation of what their business might likely sell for. Mm-hmm. And businesses have a wide array of values. And so it's, it's not necessarily hiring somebody who is going to give you a fair market value or an investment value, or, you know, there's all kinds of different terms in a court case, you know, your business might be pegged at a certain value, um, you know, in, in a private sale transaction, mm-hmm. your business could be pegged at a very different value. And so mm-hmm. it's got to be the right kind of evaluation. It's going to show you Number one, the price, what that it'll likely sell for. But number two, it's even more important, the likely terms of sale. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I don't know if there's much in life more difficult than getting money for a business mm-hmm. to buy one. Um, you know, banks are risk averse. The money in the bank is your neighbor's grocery money. They're not supposed yeah. to take risks with that money. Mm-hmm. And so when I had my brokerage office open, for example, um, two thirds of the deals we did had no bank financing at all. Not mm-hmm. to say that the buyers didn't borrow money, but they often had to borrow against things like their homes or wow. life insurance policies, or other assets they might've had mm-hmm. in order to raise the money to do the acquisition. They didn't get specifically acquisition financing from a lender. And so when I tell someone that their business might sell for half a million dollars, what's actually even more important information is that it might sell for half a million. You might expect a buyer to be able to give you half of that on closing day, and you might have to receive the other half over payments over five or six years. Or if they can bring a lender to bear, maybe you'll get 70 or 80% of that money on closing day, but the lender might require that your note be postponed with Mm -hmm. no payments for several years sometimes. And so this kind of perspective is often new for most business owners because people don't buy and sell businesses a lot, particularly in Canada, right? In in the States, the tax scenario is very different. There's all kinds of things people can do there to sell a business and roll the proceeds into a new acquisition without paying capital gains. And like, there's Mm -hmm. different things they can do there in Canada. Those tools don't exist. And so far fewer entrepreneurs do far fewer transactions. And so I've seen people who will put their business up for sale, 
they'll believe it has a certain value or they'll price it like a house. They'll say, oh, I'm going to ask this amount. And if I can't get it, I'll reduce the price later. Wrong strategy with a business mm-hmm. because there's always pent up demand and there's no such thing as a market. Every mm-hmm. business is unique. So when you put a business on the market, chances are there's someone who's right for your business out there looking for it. Mm-hmm. If you meet that person and you have unrealistic expectations of what you can sell it for, and you are not willing to receive a reasonable offer, you will lose out on that buyer. And it might take you six or 12 or 20 months to meet mm-hmm. the next one. Well, wow. Believe me, I've been through it. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had some businesses where we've had three offers over three years and, mm-hmm. and the more specialized and specific the skill set or industry or knowledge set that a buyer would need, the more difficult it can be to find that person. And so I've had people come to me after trying to sell a business for several years who've said, you know, I need your help. I've been working with different brokers. I can't find a buyer. I'll look at the package that their broker put together and I'll say, well, here's the problem. You're mm-hmm. asking, you know, a million dollars. The business mm-hmm. is probably only worth about six fifty. Mm-hmm. And in all likelihood, you can expect someone to give you 60% down based on the you know, equipment and tangibles mm-hmm. you have in the business. And you'll have to get the balance over five years. Wow. And, and more than once, Hermit, I've had people say to me, oh, well, I had an offer like that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know to take the offer because they didn't know what a reasonable offer was looking, what, what it looked like. Wow. That's, that's one of the biggest tragedies from the selling side. Mm-hmm. From the buying side, um, you know, the problems are, are many. Um, I've, I've met so many people who've gotten into bad deals where <clears throat> they didn't understand what they were looking at. I'll give, I'll give you one quick you know, mm-hmm. example. Um, when you're out there buying a business, one of the measures of cash flow that is often used is called seller's discretionary earnings. Yeah. So what this is, is the total amount of cash flow available to an owner operator that works full time in the business. Some buyers will read that definition. They'll, they'll believe if I buy this business, that's how much money will go in my pocket. But the SDE is a derivative of EBITDA. So out of that SDE, the buyer needs to take home a reasonable salary. They need to pay the tax, their own taxes and the business's income tax, depending on how they split that revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to take care of any, any capital expenditures because the depreciation and amortization has been added back to get to that number. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to service any debt and pay any interest costs because that's been added back to get that number. And so when you look at all the different things that actually have to be covered, the seller's discretionary earnings is not truly the cash flow of the business. But the reason it's become a standard in smaller businesses, main street businesses, is because you've got all of these different industries and all these different bookkeeping practices and accounting standards. And we have to find some common ground in order to compare one company to another. Mm -hmm. And so this is the measure that has come about as the dominant one. And I've, I've had people, you know, I've even had people say, I can afford that debt service because I'll just pay him the EBITDA. And mm-hmm. I'll say, well, okay, what about your interest taxes and your CapEx? Who's going to pay that yeah, if you offer yeah. the EBITDA to somebody else, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, so people don't understand what they're getting into. And, and in the worst case scenario is when people actually happen to have money. And I, I see this a lot with people who might be immigrating from another country who bring a lot of money with them yep. or people who've profited from some of the swelling real estate markets. So, you know, I live in the Maritimes down here on the east, east Coast, 
And one of the jokes is, you know, someone sells their house, you know, who's going to buy a bed and breakfast, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> with, <clears throat> along the seashore okay. with, with only seven rooms. Yeah. And the joke is, is someone, <clears throat> someone who just sold their million dollar home in Mississauga. Yeah. And, and they're yeah. going to come and they're going to write a check. And after mm-hmm. three or four years, they're going to get tired of cleaning toilets and changing sheets. And who are they going to sell it to? Well, they have to wait for someone to sell their home in Brampton. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and then that's how it goes. Right. Yeah. And, and the reason why it's unfortunate is that buyers that have a lot of money, they often don't get to take advantage of having, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Oh, excuse me. No, they don't have the advantage <clears throat> of having a banker tell them, I won't approve your loan because your deal doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Right. If they've got the money, then they it can just go through. and they can go and do something foolish without having some of the roadblocks appear that appear for a lot of other people. Yeah. Once you bring a cash in, you know, all the checks and balances go out of the way, right? Nobody's going to question you at that stuff. You, you're giving them a the money, what you need, right? Or, yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, you mentioned a few things at the back, you know, and that's one of the things I see in the market as well. Uh, you mentioned how to systemize your business, you know, build a process and standard procedures in around the business. I see business owners struggle with that piece a lot on a, on a daily basis, right? Especially, you know, when it comes to technology piece, you know, any, any other part of the business, I, I would say the business leaders I met with over the last, you know, 10, 11 years, that's one of the pieces I see, you know, I struggle with. One, they, first, they don't know how to do, you know, uh, get it done. The second of all, they don't have, a, you know, people in a place that who could uh, get it done for them or they don't have a partners in that area. Uh, would you say if that is if that piece is taken care, um, would that increase the value compared to any other uh, item in a business? That does that does that put the business on a totally different part? If you have everything systemized, you know what they say: in a, if you can take yourself out of business, can the business still operate? Right? If you have the process and everything is in place, business will operate without a, you know uh, absence of any person or, or or business owner himself. So <clears throat> every business has systems. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of where they are. So if the business systems reside in a person's mind exactly, and that person has to be present in order to execute the system every time. Mm -hmm. Um, And and sometimes business owners will fool themselves. They'll say, well, I can teach someone how to do what I do, but most business systems have a lot of exceptions rules and they'll teach someone the most common path. But then whenever something falls out of that, they have to step in and fill in those exception rules. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, we even see this not just with business owners, but even with employees, where an employee maybe has a certain responsibility, they'll come up with a way of doing it, right? Yeah. And then when that person leaves, the system leaves in their head. Exactly. It goes with them. Right? Mm-hmm. And, so, and so then the next person that has to come up has to do that responsibility. They have to then create their own new system. And you can see how what you end up with, I, I call it heroes and folklore. So if you think about, you know, um, famous knights or heroes, you know, from, from legends and myths, right? The only way that you could get something done was by finding the right champion and sending them off, right? Mm-hmm. And, and let them fly by the seat of their pants and hope that they make the right decisions. Well, you, you know, I've seen businesses built that way. I've worked in businesses built that way. I've worked in businesses when I was earlier in my sales career where, they had to hire absolute champion salespeople because they had no idea how to create them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so 
their whole their whole organization was built up with these systems in people's heads. Mm-hmm. If you can get that out of your head as a business owner, and you can get it out of the heads of your employees, and you can log it all in a systemized way that everyone can has reference to it, and that somebody can go and look and see how something is done. You know, in the worst case scenario, um, I actually helped somebody in Washington State buy a business, or maybe it was Oregon. Um, they bought the business. One of the key employees was an operations manager who coordinated the the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that person had like 15 years experience in that role. And they got into an accident and passed away a week after the the purchase was conducted. And so the new owner was in this business. The old owner was there for a transition period, but even the old owner didn't know how to execute that person's role. Mm-hmm. And so the two of them had to dive in and recreate all of the process of managing the projects and make sure that everything was done properly with the workflow that was in pl- that was undergoing right now in the business, yeah. because most of what that operations manager was doing was in their head. Mm-hmm. And that you can just imagine the risk that you face. Yeah. Uh, all of the, you know, I use an, I, I, I have a program for teaching small business systems and one of the examples that I will use is the, is the trade show. So I know it's COVID and we're not going to trade shows anymore, but if you can imagine a home improvement business and every spring or winter, they go to a home improvement trade show, like a big home show that people come yeah. to at a hockey arena or something. And so they attend the trade show and they meet a lot of people and they see some ideas. And after the trade show, they talk and they say, you know what, for next year, we should do this and we should do this and we should do this, Right. Well, and then the trade show ends and then everyone goes back to the regular job. And then the salesman comes from the, you know, the exhibition company and they sign you up again. And then all of a sudden it's two weeks to the trade show and people go, oh, we have to get ready for the trade show again. Let's put our booth together. But people don't remember the discussions that happened at the end of last year's. Mm -hmm. And so then you end up going back to the trade show again and you end up doing the same thing again and you have the same ideas, Right. And so what needs to happen is you actually need to create an exhibition trade show system Mm -hmm. so that there's a documented program that happens every year Mm -hmm. and it has to become someone's responsibility. So maybe it's somebody in marketing or sales, they actually have in their calendar, let's say three months before the trade show, Mm -hmm. uh, an annual reminder, which says it's time to execute the trade show plan, which means having a planning session where we review the notes we wrote down at the end of last year's show mm-hmm. to see what changes we have to make in preparation for this year's show. Right. Yeah. And this sounds very logical. It sounds very organized and normal, but the fact of the matter is, is that most small businesses don't operate with this level of sophistication. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people just every year say, Hey, it's, we have to get ready for the trade show. What, mm-hmm. what did we, what did we say last year that we should do? <laughs> and, and yeah. ideas are lost. Ideas are forgotten. And it's the difference between a company that shows up every year with an incrementally better exhibit booth versus one that just keeps doing the same tired old things year after year and getting the same results. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so if we're going to have continuous improvement, if we're going to have continuous growth, we need to create a mechanism that holds people accountable to make sure that the improvements that we've all worked on are not simply lost. That's, yeah. that's the real tragedy is when systems are in people's heads, you cannot, you can't, um, you know, what, what are those famous books about uh, incremental improvement? Um, 
uh, there's one at the top. It's probably back there in the bookcase. Yeah. You know, you mentioned very interesting point though, David. I see that firsthand, you know, uh, we work with a lot of IT departments and business leaders don't realize how much risk they're carrying, right? I don't know. I'll meet a business owner, you know, you know, how you're running IT. But there was, a, we have a one or two, one guy, you know, who, who's a rocks, rock star for us. He knows everything. He knows our business. He knows everything. He takes care of them. And my question is, what happened if the person leave? You know, uh, do you have yeah. process in place to replace the person? And then you see that, you know, uh, the confusion, you know, there's so much fear kicks in, right? Uh, but not realizing that person, yeah, your rock star could be attached to your business risk that you're not taking care of. Um, you need a process around it. So if something happened to the person, you know, the person wins the lottery, um, you know, and, and uh, or something happened, the person's not there tomorrow. All the documentation, all the, any IT system, you know, is crippled without a passwords and all that stuff. Right? So, yeah, um, I, I, you know, I usually go through that discussion of business leaders and try to, you know, make them understand, hey, listen, these, these rock stars you have, these are good people. They're trying to do a good job, but it's your, your job to put up process and, you know, procedures in a place so this person is not you know increasing more of your business risk they're supposed to eliminate your business risk not other way around right so it's a very interesting point but that's that's what i see a lot of business leaders you know it's uh, other part is emotional side and i don't know how much that impact impacts on a, on, a, on a when you sell a business or, or when you when you buy a business i think i would say some smaller business more business leader you know owners like myself we loved what we did in a, in a technical field before we built the businesses. We were never trained as a business owner. We were very good at our technical trade, whatever we were doing, and we built the businesses. And you worked so hard over the years. And definitely there's an emotional piece to it that, that is mm-hmm. so emotionally attached when it comes to buying and selling business. Definitely the emotions play a role in it, you know, when you need completing a transaction. How big do you, you see that that piece um, when, you, when somebody trying to prepare the you know, a business to sell or they buying a business? How big is the emotional piece because it works so hard in a business? Well, well, I, I think there's two things. And, and let's talk about organizing and operating the business first. Okay. Um, a lot of small and medium-sized business owners are not aware of where they reside on an org chart. And I'll, I'll ask a lot of my clients, can you show me an org chart of your organization? What they show me is some kind of pyramid with squares that have people's names in it. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way we build them. So what, what I teach people is that you build an org chart with roles. So what are the different roles and, res- and what responsibilities are attached to those roles? Mm-hmm. And then later we put names in them. And so a lot of business owners will be unaware of the different specific roles that they are filling. And so they will end up doing things in roles for far too long than they, you know, they should be changing the name in that box to somebody else's name at, at a given point. Mm-hmm. And so what takes real business maturity, though, extreme maturity, is knowing when your name should likely not be in the top box. So mm-hmm. I'll give you a few examples. I actually have worked with clients over the years who, uh, one, it was a manufacturing concern and they were building things out of metal and okay. you know, highly organized process of, of manufacturing. Every object was custom built. And so mm-hmm. very organized. The owner of that business was an operations man, and he knew the construction methods, how to build things, et cetera. The business grew, it grew, it grew. At a certain point on the org chart, he put himself in the um, operations and manufacturing, head of manufacturing, and he put other people ahead of him, mm-hmm. above him. So he, he hired someone to be the president. He hired someone to be the CFO, and he let them you know, report to him quarterly at the board of directors meeting. 
-hmm. And he went to work every day doing what he knew best and where he delivered the maximum value to the organization. A lot of the times you will actually see small businesses that have been held back from their potential because the owner insists on being, you know, the top person in charge and they don't actually have the proper skill set. So that's, that's one thing when it comes to selling that emotional tie-in with the business can be, it can be big. I, and, and here's where, um, here's how it can manifest itself. Um, I've had people, you know, put their business up for sale and have had multiple offers and they don't pick the highest one, right? Because some of their concerns in selling the business may not actually be entirely just the purchase price. They might also be concerned about what they believe the new owner is going to do with the business. Mm-hmm. So people can have concern about employees. People can have concern about communities. Um, I've seen people in smaller communities not sell to a big strategic buyer because they were afraid that that buyer would shut down the plant, move the production elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And they they wanted the business to remain in the community. And so people will have a set of motivating factors in front of them when they go to leave their business, when they go to exit, and and it can it can guide them in, in a different way than one might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also had examples where people's identity has been so intertwined with the business mm-hmm. that they've had a deal to sell and then they wanted to back out of the deal. Um, there's one case, uh, it wasn't one that I worked on, but it was one that I've, I've heard the story, you know, secondhand from the broker who did it, where a deal to sell a business was about to fall apart when the buyer offered the seller that he could keep his office. So the the seller sold the business, but he got to keep his office. And so he would come in in the morning, he would make coffee, he would chit chat a little bit with people. Then he would go home, walk his dog, come back later in the day, meet with some of the customers on the showroom floor, chit chat with them, have some more coffee and he would go home. Like he was, he had been going there for closing in on five decades and so he was, his identity, his persona was so tied into that business that the buyer realized he's not going to do this deal unless I let him do make this a part of his life. Mm-hmm. And it, it was great because they had this access to the longevity of the history of the business. And eventually over many years, the guy did eventually retire, but the danger of that seller was that he literally didn't know what his life was outside of that business. And so a lot of exit planning professionals out there, um, whether they're talking about family succession or, or selling a business, a lot of the times part of their work will be, what are you going to do? How are you going to build a life outside of this business? Because for a lot of these owners, you know, business hours are long mm-hmm. and they don't have a whole lot going on outside of their business for some of them. Mm-hmm. What interesting. Wow. Um, does that dynamic change, uh, uh, David, as, as you look at a little bigger businesses, you know, when you go 50 employees up, 100 employees up, you know, um, does that dynamic a little bit changes? Now you have a C-level employees in, in place. You have, a, you know, a board of directors in place or you have, a, you know, family members maybe maybe involved or partners maybe involved. So as you look at a little bigger businesses, you know, does that change dynamic a little bit or is it the same kind of process? It, it starts to change a lot. So. Um, I primarily deal with what are called main street businesses. So businesses with an EBITDA cash flow of under half a million dollars. Okay. Once you cross that line, you get into the lower middle market and the lower middle market, you start to see more sort of professional management, more professional leadership 
as you go from lower middle market in, into mid market, the language in business changes. Um, yeah. you, people start speaking what I call MBA. So you get more people who are professionally educated in the world of business. The conversations they're having are, are more technical and more data-driven mm -hmm. and less emotional. So if you can imagine a business negotiation where a big company is selling a division to another big company and a bunch of people meet at a boardroom table and they're all MBAs and they're talking about this, you know, they're coming to an agreement probably without, without much emotional charge in the room, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're both arguing for getting the best deal, but they're going to come to a deal and they're going to shake hands and everything. Where, where I see a lot of potential friction is when one of these larger companies that speaks MBA wants to go and talk with one of the smaller businesses that is more personality driven mm -hmm. because there can be a mismatch in the dialogue. Um, you know, I, I saw a, an interesting thing the other day where a business seller uh, became offended when one of the people on the acquisition team referred to their business as the target business. Wow. Right. And mm -hmm. so if you're, if you're talking about mergers and acquisitions, often the business being bought is called the target. Right. Yeah. But this person owned the business mm -hmm. and, and the terminology made him feel like they literally had painted a target on him. They were going to get him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's part of what I'm talking about is that, you know, you've, someone will have an emotional investment in that business and the other people don't quite understand that. They're not coming from the same angle. And mm -hmm. I've actually been hired in some of these situations to help consult with the acquirers on how to best, you know, create a plan or, or manage that conversation. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, you can see the two different dynamics. You know, we speak, even though we speak in the same language, but we speak in a different language. One is more transactional, more logical. Another one is completely emotional because somebody put, you know, their, their life sweat into, into building their company and definitely they're going to be more sensitive to when they're trying to sell a business. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Wow, interesting. So, so what what is a business can do? You know, uh, David, from your side, you know, if somebody wants to, you know, either uh, grow over the acquisition or over the merger. Somebody wants to, you know, twenty twenty two. Everybody's, you know, we almost there. And everybody definitely planning this this time of the year. They they look and you know, how do I scale up the business again? You know, either either with the acquisitions or or. Uh, just a revenue growth, you know, or build a business value. What are some of the things you, you know, you mind you can, you can, um, you know, recommend they should look into uh, that they can, they can get to uh, the, the plans where they want to get to. Sure. So, um, you know, growth through acquisition. Uh, if someone wants to grow their business by buying another business, uh, very rarely happens by luck. You know, there, there are plenty of stories out there about, a, you know, a business wants to, uh, an owner wants to sell his business and he sends off letters to potential acquirers to get their attention. Um, that doesn't happen a lot. There is a whole ecosystem of people out there trying to meet that business owner before they meet with a potential acquirer. So business brokers are sending them things all the time, talking about how if they list the business with the brokerage, mm -hmm. the brokerage will create competition amongst buyers and get a higher price. There are people out there looking to grow actively who are looking for acquisition targets and they're mm -hmm. sending off those letters, they're making those phone calls. And so there's a lot of activity going on all the time for people trying to make these matches happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so if it's your plan, 
to grow through acquisition, then you actually need to make a plan and you need to enact that plan. And then it can look very different from different kinds of businesses. So um, in larger companies, I here's an interesting case. Um, you know, you might actually have a VP of M&A whose job, full-time job it is, is to be like a business broker looking for acquisition targets. Mm-hmm. And they're not looking at business for sale websites. They're out there knocking on doors. They're analyzing where they want to grow, where they have strategic advantages to grow, maybe parts or regions where they have customers that have locations, but they aren't there to serve them, for example. They're, mm-hmm. they're looking at this. There are even... Uh, some companies that have active acquisition programs. And one of the best examples would be in the pest control industry. So if someone's licensed for pest control and they get a pickup truck and they get some customers, they will start getting letters in the mail from the big pest control companies saying, Mm -hmm. hey, when it's time for you to retire, give us a call. We have a retirement program for independent operators. Mm -hmm. And, And they are actively trying to get these independent shops into their pipeline. And that's how they grow. And so um, thinking about how you're going to grow, who ideally you want to acquire, that's the hardest part. Because once you can sketch out that company that you would like to add, I mean, literally, then you just have to look at the yellow pages or some kind of industry list or association membership list, and you can find them. Mm -hmm. And then it's a question of opening up those conversations and being prepared to invest the time in building a relationship so that remember those motivations that make people want to sell. Oftentimes when you contact someone, they won't want to sell and Mm -hmm. you need to build and nurture a relationship so that when something happens in that person's life that changes their mind, Mm -hmm. lucky for them, they already know someone that wants to buy a business like theirs. And that's when you get your opportunity. Mm -hmm. Wow. Is that, is that different than the process in the U.S., uh, uh, David, or is it the same kind of process that they go through as well? Because, uh, you know, majority of business leaders, I, I don't know if, uh, if you follow the same report, but I, I saw a report from our RBC that majority of business leaders in, a, in, a, in a Canada, um, you know, small businesses, they are above age 55 or 60, you know, so they are looking for some sort of, uh, you know, exit in a very, very you know, short period of time. So, is it a same process there, or is it a more little bit different here in Canada? No, 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 it's, it's the same everywhere. And you know, about the, the comments about the age of most business owners, um, there's, this, there's this term, the gray tsunami, that mm-hmm. predicts that all these businesses are going to want to be sold. And, you know, a lot of people who are over 55 might say that they want to exit. But I run into so many of them, Gurmeet, who are not mm-hmm. prepared. Um, and they really believe that they are the uh, person that controls everything to do with the timeline. Like, wow. like a lot of them will think that the day I turn 65, I can put the business up for sale and it'll be sold three months later and I'm gone. And if that's the strategy, then, you know, you may not achieve success. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I mentioned earlier that I was on a conference call with one of these large business selling websites Mm-hmm. Um, they do a survey of the people that use the website and people who are members, but have not yet listed a business for sale. One of the biggest reasons why people who own businesses have not listed their business for sale, according to their survey, was that the business was performing too well to sell. Wow. Think about that. Mm-hmm. So this is a person who's initiated an idea that they want to sell. They've joined the website. They, they're learning about selling their business but they don't want to sell because it's performing too well right now. Right. Uh 
Oh. And so here's, here's the issue mm-hmm. is that when your business is performing well is exactly the time you should be selling it. Yeah. yeah. Right. So where is that coming from that they, they, they never planned the exit strategy or, or is it is just a lack of exit strategy or they just never planned it accordingly? Just, I need to prepare for this stuff. It's just a three month focal point. They're not looking beyond that. They're just, they're just looking right in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, too many people see selling a business as some kind of ripcord to a parachute, you know, well, you know, I'll, I'll work at this. And if it doesn't work out, I'll sell it. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you know, the, the, the best exits for the biggest dollar value happen when you've got growth and profitability and great prospects for the future. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things are going to drive the value up when there are bumps or uncertainties or unknowns that's when the value goes down or the terms tip into the favor of the buyer where, mm-hmm. yeah, you might get your price, but you're not going to get all your money on closing or yeah. you're going to have to finance over a longer period of time, or you might end up behind a bank and they're going to require you to do a five-year postponement before you get any of your money. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I see, you know, um, I don't know if you notice the same thing. I see business leaders, you know, who build the companies, you know, hundred employees, 200 employees, that, that area, but, you know, they, they set back now, you know, they're not involved, actively involved in a business anymore. They got the C-level employees who, who are making decisions around the business, you know. Um, they're making a decision on an operation level is one thing, but they're making a business decision on an ongoing basis. And, you know, you see that, you know, these decisions being made, you know, their stake in a business is completely different than, than somebody who built a business, right? So totally different risk, totally different stake. But business leaders, they step back and, and they simply, you know, mm-hmm. let them uh, make all the decisions. Well, well, so, but hang on here. Let's, mm. let's talk about that because um, that is an exit strategy. Because when we, when we talk about exit strategies for business owners, we're talking about them leaving the business. And one of the most lucrative exit strategies ever, if you can pull it off, is to be able to not spend your time in the business. Remember, they sell for relatively, privately controlled businesses sell for relatively low multiples of earnings. I see. Okay. So most of the time when I explain to someone what their business will sell for, the most common reaction is, well, if I just kept it for a few years, I'd have the same money and still own the business. And they're mm-hmm. right. Right. So the most lucrative way to exit a business is to fill all the roles with other people and continue to enjoy the cash flow and ownership benefit while you are free to do something else. I see. So that is part of the exit strategy, what you're saying that they are already silent, but they're still making the same revenue that they should be making. Yeah. They're, they're, well, they're earning the profits of the business, right? And they don't have to go there every day. So mm-hmm. they have left the building. What is it? Elvis has left the building, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And, and yeah, they probably are still getting calls and stuff, but in, in my mind, if you can be active for a couple hours a week and still enjoy the cash flow from the business, then you've really won, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you this. This is probably more for me than anybody else's question. So if you if you are selling a business, if you have a business that that you um, lowering business, uh, you know, people's business risk, or you're trying to lower somebody's either risk or they're trying to help them increase revenue or or trying to make people more productive. You know, those are your 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 some of the, the services you deliver. Business owners in our presence, you know, you get a C-level employees. That's a, course, a challenge for them to a decision-making process because, you know, nobody's going to make a decision on that. Hey, listen, I really need to grow this business or I really need to be careful if I can make a pure more productive or really need to lower the business risk 
because all those things are not so critical for C-level employees. Well, I mean, that's how, how active is the board going to be, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and we're talking about that organizational chart again. So if the owner only exists at the board level, then what are the board meetings looking like? What kind of governance are they creating? What, what mm-hmm. mandates and expectations are they putting on those C-level employees, right? You know, over at the board meeting for Coca-Cola, you know, the board is giving instructions to the president and the CEO, like, this is what we want to see. We want to see this kind of growth. We want to see, you know, expansion in this way or cutting this cost or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's up to the, it's up to management to execute on that. And usually they have a compensation package tied to the performance, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's, it's, again, it's growth as an owner. So, you know, you take that person, you know, that Michael Gerber e-myth, uh, book, you know, the technician mm-hmm. versus the entrepreneur, you take the technician who knows how to do a certain trade and you make them the business owner. And then the business starts to grow. I gave you one example of a person who let other people get in above them because they knew their limitations, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if that person is going to grow as a business owner, then they have to grow in their skill set. They have to learn how to move from the technical skill up to running a business eventually if they're going to keep going and the business keeps growing and they're going to exit the day to day, then they have to grow into that skill of learning governance and direction of mm-hmm. how to be a board member at a, you know, a board member of one probably mm-hmm. and give direction and guidance to the people that are actually running the day to day. And that's a skill set. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something different. I, I draw the analogy to a chain of gas stations, Right. So, so if you own a gas station and you run it and you're there every day, like you're the manager and you're the owner, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you decided to move to Florida, but still own it, you would hire a manager. Now, is that manager going to run the business for a full year and then send the financial statements to you? No, mm-hmm. right? Because if you compare it to the chain of gas stations, right? You know, Petro Canada or Esso or whatever, those stores have managers too, but they don't get to make all the decisions for a year and then set a, send a exactly. set of financial statements to head office. Mm-hmm. They have someone called a regional manager. And so many locations are report to that regional manager. So if you're, if you as a business owner want to remove yourself from running the individual store, you have to develop the skills of the regional manager. What are we looking at? So key performance indicators, Mm-hmm. Am I going to log into the sales system back end through the cloud every week and see what the results are? Am I going to spend some time checking the video cameras or what have you, right? What skills would that regional manager have? And so if you want to use that analogy, it expands to any kind of business. Mm-hmm. What would be, you know, if a hundred person business were sold to a big multinational corporation, who would the leader of the hundred person business report to? And what skill set would that person have? Mm-hmm. This, these are the skills that the owner would have to develop if they want to exit and continue to be the owner. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from a, from a time somebody started a business, by the time they look for, it looks like the skill set's changing all the time, right? You, you, you need to have an operational skill set, then you have a leadership, then you have to have a, you know, looks like, you know, you've got to be willing to sharpen your skill set, any, any, any different, you know, state of the, so your business or life, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting on my YouTube channel, there's um, an interview with a guy named Ian who started off as an auto mechanic and, and eventually opened his own shop where he worked as a mechanic. And, and he actually describes how he went through this development 
and and eventually he built up uh, to more than one location, um, and he owned the real estate, and he's moved on to becoming an investor. He actually sold his auto repair business mm-hmm. and retained the building, and he sold the repair business on a note so that he could maximize his total return through holding the note with interest. And he's the landlord, so he's gone to becoming a real estate investor. And now he's got his hands in all kinds of other different investments. Mm-hmm. And he describes how he, you know, started to invest in learning uh, through taking education programs about how to run a more successful auto repair business. Mm-hmm. And, and as his awareness and as his mindset changed over the course of time, it allowed him to keep progressing from one stage to the next. And, you know, now, now a very, very successful gentleman started off as an auto mechanic and certainly now benefits from skills that were not taught, you know, at the, at the college where he learned how to fix cars. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to acquire the skill set either from a bookstore or, or, or somebody built a YouTube channel with the tons of, tons of videos or, you know, a lot of education there, like your channel, um, a lot of education there and, and people written, I think most of business leaders, they, they do write, you know, uh, a lot of content online and the books um, out there. Right. So to, for, for people to t- take a, take a learning approach. Yeah. And, and I think one of the most important things is attitude is, is just understanding that you don't know everything mm-hmm. and being open to learning um, so that those new ideas can get through, you know, your perceptive filter and get into your head mm-hmm. um, and, and time to stew on them. You know, most of the successful leaders I know have elements in their day or their week where they just have time to be thinking about stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, and one of the biggest things that I, I challenge every person on, every business owner or everyone who is trying to buy a business is I'll ask them about who they spend time with. You know, uh, a lot of people will have their friends from school years and, you know, not everyone proceeds along the same path. Yeah. And you cannot be growing into a leader of a business and, and, and you know, wanting to achieve new heights and expand and buy other businesses. If you're spending most of your time hanging out with your buddies from high school that have none of those things in common with you, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to figure out who am I spending my time with? Am I in the right places where I'm being exposed to the right attitudes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. What I find is that, you know, I could be at one place meeting a bunch of good friends that are in all different kinds of areas of life. And someone will express an attitude about something in a business or the news. You know, I'll be like, oh, you know, those guys over there, they're, they're you know, they're going to go on strike because they're looking for more money. It's only fair that they get more, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll be in a different place, um, you know, a, a club where business owners tend to be, and they'll be discussing the same thing. And they'll say, oh, wow, you know, I wonder how they're going to survive a 6% increase in their biggest expense. Totally different perspective. Right. And, yeah. and so they're talking about it from a different point of view. Uh, a business is positive, profit is positive kind of view. Um, and listen, if you ever, if anyone out there listening to this ever hears about somebody downplaying profit or downplaying, you know, the value the business brings to the community or, or trying to say that someone has greater virtue because they're in a not-for-profit type of setting, yeah. You know, all the things we enjoy as a, as a society, the roads, the hospitals, the schools are all paid with by taxes. Yeah. You have to have a profit to pay taxes. Of course. And so yeah. whenever somebody tries to 
virtue signal to me about something being uh, better because it's somehow not for profit, <laughs> I'll say, oh, you mean like they don't contribute to anything? Like they're a bunch of, you know, parasites on society instead yeah. of people that help pay the bills? Yeah, yeah. You know, like put people in their place because the, the, the business people of the world foot the bill for everything. Of course. I mean, everything. The, well, the, the problem is we are minority in, when you look at that, 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 you know, that population in a country, we are minority compared to that, you know, uh, other population. And that's where a lot of political interest, a lot of political bandwidth goes other, uh, against, you know, business leaders, right? Because, um, you know, population-wise, we, we're probably a very small community, right? Uh, business leaders, right? So I think that's, that's one of the things. But definitely, you know, I totally agree with you. Hey, you know, without that, you know, economy is not built by, you know, political leaders or governments. The economy is built by businesses, right? Somebody got to move, somebody, somebody got to sell yeah. someone, somebody got to build profit. That's how economies are built. Not, not by somebody sitting in office and trying to uh, sign a bunch of policies and procedures. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Beautiful. So, so tell me a little bit, I t- talk about a little bit, how did you start a YouTube channel, David? You know, uh, what, what inspired you to start the channel? Well, I wrote my first book in 2014 and I thought I would start a YouTube channel to promote it. And people started talking to me in the comments and asking questions and, and more and more of it specifically about buying and selling businesses, because that was my professional background. Mm-hmm. And then the channel uh, sort of changed into that. And then I wrote more books, which were all centered on uh, buying and selling businesses. And so that that's how it went. And, wow. and I mean, if people are interested um, every week, there's a new video and I put them up uh, also over on my blog site, which is davidcbarnett.com. And there's links there to playlists on YouTube. So mm-hmm. I'd love for people to subscribe to me on, on YouTube or come get on my email list on the blog. And that's also uh, the audio from the YouTube uh, videos is on every podcast catcher out there. Just look for David C. Barnett, uh, small business and deal making, and you'll find it. Beautiful. So what, what, what did you see, uh, you know, before what, uh, we talk about that, you know, going, so what do you see the growth in, you know, uh, what, what did the YouTube channel do, you know, do for you? you know, you've been doing it for seven, six, seven years, right? The last video I looked at, it was uh, seven years ago, right? Yeah. So what do you see that, that, that uh, what is it done for you over the years? You've been, you've been spending a lot of investing, a lot of time and energy into it. What has it done for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's changed the selling cycle. So if you look at, <clears throat> If you look at the sales cycle, um, there's always a part there called building rapport where you get to know the customer, right? So my YouTube channel has automated that part. So I now get emails from people like way back when, when I first started consulting, especially full-time, I was doing more business locally. I would get referred to people and they would say, let's get together and have coffee. I'd like to get to know you and see how you can help me. And I spent a lot of time on those meetings basically interviewing for the opportunity to get consulting work, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what now happens is I get emails from people who say, hi, David, I've spent three hours every night for the last five nights watching your videos and I want to work with you. This is my project. What does it cost? Nice. It's totally different. Um, And so it, the people are able to get to know me uh, through the YouTube channel mm-hmm. by watching the videos and they get, they get uh, a flavor for the depth of experience that I have and, and the things that I stand for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they can make a decision usually like, yeah, that's the kind of guy I want to work with or not. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I don't know. I don't hear from the people who don't want to work with me. Uh, <laughs> you know, kudos to you that it is hard work. You know, I've been doing it for only seven, six, seven months. You've been doing it for six, seven years. 
to do that consistently, you know, um, over you know over the number you know number of years, definitely is a lot of hard work, and I'm sure that you know certain you know, sometimes you just want to take a break, but you know once you're committed to it, you want to keep going with that. Um, it is a lot of hard work, and but I think. Uh, you know, I'm feeling that it's seven months I've been in. So, you know, it's, it's rewarding. You know, definitely you learn a lot. You know, you grow a lot as a person. And I get to meet people like you, you know, and, and we, we chat. And but definitely, you know, it's a hard work. You know, you have to uh, take a lot of time out of your weekly, you know, weekly basis and give it to this channel and, and uh, grow this channel all the time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but it pays off. And, you know, I, I kind of think of it as part of my legacy. Um, I get emails all the time from people who say, wow, I avoided doing something really stupid because of what I learned in one of your videos or, you know, and, and, and to me that really validates all the effort that I put into it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yeah, the, the, the channel is there to serve me as a marketing tool for my business, but you know, nothing is more upsetting to me than someone who, uh, gets into a bad deal or loses a bunch of money that they worked sometimes for decades saving mm-hmm. because they didn't know something or didn't understand something that um, they could have found out if only it was out there to find. And that's, that's driven me for a lot of these years too, is some of these stories uh, of people's losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, it, it feels good that other people are writing to me saying that they've had things work out because of the warnings that, that they've gotten through videos that I've made. Yeah. No, you're making uh, impact on a lot of people. You're serving a lot of people. You're helping a lot of people. I think that's a, that's a great gift that you could give to your community and, and beyond, you know, anybody, can, you know, outside. I will definitely recommend, you know, as, uh, business owners who are watching uh, our podcast today, either you're looking to buy or sell a business or you're simply looking to grow um, and I will build a business while you, you know, um, check out your YouTube channel, check out your podcast, you know, take a listen and uh, connect with you. Um, you know, uh, maybe sometime conversation can, you know, open up a lot of blind spot as a business owners we have that we're not looking at through the blind spot, but somebody like you, you know, been doing it for a long time can help people to see through those blind spots. So where can people find you, David? Uh, is that your website is, I'm going to put all those links yep. to the video as well. So what is it? Uh, davidcbarnett.com is is like the main place and then from there you can find me in the other different places on the internet that i'm at and and you can also sign up for my email list and i send out an email almost every day but you can select what topics are of interest to you so business owners might select simply you know selling a business Mm -hmm. and you'll only get the emails that i send out related to that topic beautiful well i want to appreciate your time you've been very generous with the time thank you so much i learned so much from our discussion you know, in every discussion I have, I take away a lot of the, a lot of pointers. But, you know, I learned so much from our discussion. Definitely, I'm going to order for your books and I'm going to go through that as well. So thank you awesome. so much. Thank you so much, Gurmeet. It was great to spend time with you today and have a have a prosperous 2022. Thank you. Have a great holidays and we'll talk on the other side. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Hi there. Thank you so much for investing time with us and watching this video. Hope you enjoyed this discussion. For next episode, please don't forget to subscribe to this channel and send your feedback. Until next time, have yourself a great day. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye.